On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, farmers protecting the giant crayfish in Tasmania's northwest. Over time, I'd love to see some really big lobsters come back into this environment. There's no doubt we're not trapping or tagging very large ones. They, they really have had a lot of pressure put on them over the years, but, yeah, hopefully there's hope for them there. And the fresh flower industry in Tasmania bounces back. It's interesting, up until the pandemic, approximately 90% of Australia's flowers across all types of flowers were imported from overseas. Courtesy of the pandemic and reduced airline flights, the number of imported flowers was rapidly reduced. And so a lot of Australian grown flowers have come back onto the market. Yeah, the effect the pandemic had on the fresh flower industry and protecting the giant crayfish found in Tasmania's northwest. Those stories coming up for you today. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday as the sun keeps shining. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the program and see what's expected over the next few days. A bit more rain on the way. Plus, a look at the massive livestock sale at Wagga today. I think it's about 80,000 lamb and sheep to go under the hammer. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. You too can be part of the action via the text line 0438 922 936. 0438 922 936 is that number. We start the day with the dairy industry and a leading dairy farmer says the decision by a major multinational milk processor to shut a factory and significantly reduce production at two others is a sign of the decline in dairy. Dairy giant Saputo has announced it will shut one of the factories at Mafra in Gippsland and will close a powder line at Leangatha and cheese packing operations at Millel in South Australia. A total of 75 jobs will be cut in the move. Warwick Long spoke to Mark Billing, the president of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria. He says as milk production continues to shrink, factories could continue to close. It's a, come as a bit of a shock with Saputo, Saputo's announcement, but I, I suppose it was more about not a lot of warning, I suppose, although you know, with the milk pool shrinking, I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised. My mind goes firstly to, to those that uh, potentially are going to lose their jobs with this rationalisation that Saputo's doing and the impact on the local communities because dairy farms still need to have local communities to be viable and uh, sustainable to provide us the services that we need to continue with our businesses. But, yeah, look, I, I think it's unfortunately with the size of the milk pool now, um, yeah, this rationalisation of, of processing, as we see in Victoria, but it, it could potentially be nationwide as well. Yeah, so the the wider picture here to you is a symbol that the the amount of milk being produced in Australia by dairy farmers has been declining. It's led to competitive milk market and higher prices for farmers, but ultimately companies like Saputo have made some hard hard calls on on the factories they own. Yeah, that's right. And then if, look, there's been some hard calls made on farm too. Don't forget that with the um, rising cost and, and labour, there's been a lot of dairy farmers right-sizing their, their herd based on the resource that they can draw upon. So I think that's sort of had a, an impact obviously on, on the milk pool. But look, I, I think if we can um, stabilise the milk pool going forward, we need a lot of things to go right. And you know, whether it's weather and labour and all those other issues, um, yeah, I can understand why Saputo have made the move they've, they have. The dairy milk pool still is in decline. What will it take to turn that around? Oh, look, I think it's, it's a lot about confidence, Warwick. So I think, look, I'm reasonably confident that the industry's still got a pretty good future. 
it sustained a, you know, four generations of my family along the way, but um, I, I'm pretty confident that we can see things stabilise over the next few years. And, and yeah, look, there's there's been more opportunities and more choices for dairy farmers over the last couple of years than I've ever seen, whether it's to um, pull up stumps and, and sell the farm and, and go into retirement or, or whether it's pivoting to beef. There's a lot of choice at the moment. So we haven't necessarily seen that in the industry for a long time. So I think a lot of people are, are just exercising their, their um, opportunities. Saputo won't rule out closing further factories. In fact, asked even about the future of Lee and Gatha or Malel themselves, uh, the company wouldn't make any hard and fast commitments. Are you concerned about there being more factory closures before things improve? Oh, look, concern for, for a number of reasons. One is that we need to have a diversity of, of processes in the, in the um, environment, that's for sure. Um, concern also for those that um, may lose their jobs through these closures as well um, because it, dairy, it, the one thing that dairy does is the, the processing happens you know, pretty close to where the milk is, is um, harvested from, from dairy farms and, and then processed and that supports local communities. So my concern would be that um, you know, communities like Lee and Gatha and Mafra and others, um, Gippsland's had a bit of a belting with, with um, job losses over the, the years. My concern would be more for the, the communities and, and, you know, moving on from that, um, if the community is not there, the, the support for dairy farm businesses may not be there either. Will there be more factory closures, do you think? Look, I think if the milk pool keeps shrinking the way it is, um, I, I think there they potentially will be. I mean, um, any business, like I said, you know, dairy farmers have um, looked at their businesses and some have increased, some have decreased based on a, a whole range of things. And I would assume that processes would do something very similar. All I'd say is that um, we need the whole of the supply chain to be profitable. Um, and if that means right-sizing a business to be profitable and, and return value for our product through the supply chain, then um, I don't think there's too many things that you want to take off the table when it comes to choice. Whose responsibility is it then to make the industry grow again? Is it the, the farmers? Is it uh, dairy farm leadership organisations? Is it the, the industry bodies like Dairy Australia? Is it processes? I, I think it's all of us, Warwick. It's, it's, a, um, it's a whole supply chain issue. Um, so it starts at the farm, no doubt, and goes through to retail. Everyone needs to take responsibility to ensure that the returns for our product is shared fairly and, and equitably along the supply chain. That's Mark Billing, President of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, talking to Warwick Long about the state of the dairy industry following that decision of Saputo to close one processing facility and scale back two others in Victoria and South Australia. A Sydney-based company has purchased a low THC hemp facility from ECS Botanics at Cressy in the north of the state. The business was producing material for medicinal oils. It's expected the new owners will continue with those operations. Alex Keach from ECS says it wasn't financially viable running plants in Tasmania and also Victoria. A couple of years ago, we did purchase another facility in Victoria and we've focused a lot of our attention and capital on that business. So really the decision was about focusing and simplifying the business. Two sets of regulatory expenses, running two teams, um, it comes at a cost and also a bit more of a distraction. So we decided to sell Tasmania, but at the same time double the size of our Victorian facility. 
and that Victorian facility is a is a cultivation facility and also a, a pharmaceutical manufacturing facility. Um, the Tasmanian facility was a more of a low THC biomass facility where we grow um, effectively hemp for extraction into medicinal oils, and the Victorian facility had a fo has a focus around THC dry flour. Um, THC dry flour is a really fast growing segment of the market. So there's been a bit of a shift away from biomass for oils to, to dry flour. And the dry flowers for inhalation, it's a premium product with a premium price. So we yeah, made the, made the decision, not, not an easy decision because of those close ties to Tassie, but to focus our attention on the, on the Victorian facility. Is it more expensive to produce what you want in Tasmania versus Victoria? It's more expensive if we're running two facilities. So to produce THC dry flour in Tasmania, yes, it'd be more expensive. The reason being is the climate for THC dry flour in northwest Victoria is, is pretty much perfect. It's, it's hot and dry. So it's quite a sterile environment for when you're growing a, a flowery bud, which is what, what is that growth segment of the market. You've also divested your product and assets for the, the hemp food market. Um, why have you done that? Um, again, just sort of focusing in on the, the um, sort of high revenue generating profit centres of the business. So the hemp food business in the last quarter, I think, accounted for less than 10% of our revenue because the medicinal cannabis business is growing quite strongly. The medicinal business is also higher margin, um, higher demand, um, more customers, more opportunity for export. We've started exporting overseas now. Yeah, it just made sense to just focus on, on the medicinal side of the business. Um, dealing with coals and woolies um, isn't, isn't an easy business and the margins are a bit lower and, you know, it, it did take quite a few people to run that business as well. Can you see more of these hemp companies that started out in food transitioning to medicinal cannabis? Is that the future? Look, it's a very different business. Um, medicine and food, very different set of standards, requires a lot more capital to be in, in medicine and a different skill set. So, look, I think there will be a bit more of that natural progression, but we're sort of seeing a lot of consolidation in in both the hemp space at the moment for food and also in the um, medicinal cannabis business. And, and what's the reason for that? Is it connected to the, the global production of, of, of hemp? Look, I think there was a lot of, lot of speculation of demand that, for hemp food that hasn't really materialised. It is still quite expensive crop to, to, to grow and then, you know, there's quite a lot of processing involved as well. There's margin compression happening, um, the price in, in the supermarkets is, is coming down for, for hemp food. And there was a lot of people that jumped into the industry early as well. So, you know, naturally businesses go through consolidation when, when it becomes real. Medicinal cannabis, the, the market is very strong, um, but equity market-wise it's quite depressed. So you've had a lot of companies that weren't producing anything and had these massive valuations, hundreds of millions. Now a lot of them are producing, they've got valuations in the tens of millions and some of them have very um, capital intensive businesses. It's a bit of an industry shakeout which is happening now and you'll see a few companies rise to the top um, and go on and become stronger and um, there's others which will be maybe acquired by 
bigger players or, or go out of business. If you had any advice for prospective medicinal cannabis businesses trying to set up in Tasmania, what would it be? Make sure you're in it for the, for the long run and you have a very sound business model and you have plenty of capital. Demand's definitely there and um, we, can't, we can't keep up with, with demand at the moment. And that's one of the main reasons we're, we're um, using the funding from this to continue to grow our Murray River operation. Look, yeah, you've got to be passionate about it. You've got to stick to it and, um, and just, just realise that, you know, you are in the pharmaceutical business and, and the um, sexiness of the cannabis industry can disappear quite quickly. Alex Keach from ECS Botanicals talking to Larissa Smith about their decision to sell up in Tasmania and concentrate on Victoria. Coming up, the rescue of the giant crayfish by farmers in Tasmania's northwest and the fight to stop plagues of mice. Start your day the right way with Rick Goddard. Look at fairy tales, how they've changed. Kids need adversity to learn from. Success is not the default. I read The Hands Christian Anderson to my kids the other day and they were mortified because it's the original one. And you know what? For Ariel, it's not a happy ending for her. No. She doesn't get the prince. And I literally had my five-year-old in tears say, that's not a proper fairy tale. It didn't end well and ran off. Rick Goddard, Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, deep in the northwest forest, some farmers have joined forces to help protect one of Tasmania's rarest creatures, the giant freshwater crayfish. Once it was normal for someone like fifth-generation farmer Malcolm to clear fertile land next to rivers and turn it into pasture. He had no idea of the severe impact that might have on one of the planet's most unique creatures. But thanks to a project started three years ago, the farmers are taking action to save the species as well as improving their farms along the way. If you walked in a straight line that way, you would hit the Antarctica and you wouldn't hit a town. Literally, they're just... This is Malcolm. He's showing me around his paddock, which is buried in thick, dense forest alongside a river in far northwest Tasmania. A Tassie tiger still here? (laughs) He's a fifth generation farmer, and in the 1980s, Malcolm, his father, and his brother decided to clear a 60 acre flat on the banks of the Detention River. I left school when I was 15 and a half. And, um, yeah, so I was 16, 17, 18. My nightlife was down here (laughs) (laughs) uh, pushing fire heaps together and we blew the stumps with, you know, nitropyl and gelic night and, yeah, and, yeah. A 17, 18-year-old boy's dream, That's exactly right, yeah, blowing things up, yeah, and it's experimenting and, yeah, blowing up full trees and seeing how high you could lift them off the ground and things like that. (laughs) Happy days, yeah. I'm sure you noticed the landscape changed over the time after after you cleared it. Can you explain to me a little bit about what happened? As we started clearing, we come across you know real swampy areas, and um, the, the creek used to you know weave its way you know, across the, the the 60 acre paddock, you know, and then we got to a certain point, and then we put a, a main what we call the main drain excavator drain straight through the middle in a nice straight line, and just to dry the rest of the bush ground out and the tea tree scrub and everything so that we could actually clear it, you know, and it just stayed wet all the time. Yeah, you virtually couldn't actually walk through it, a lot of it. Um, Now, we'll fast forward in time about 40 years Mm. and and you got a phone call or a door knock from someone, a a visitor. um, Fiona 
from Cradle Coast um, contacted us and said that you know she had grants available to defence the river, you know, the the, the, the protect the, the cattle, you know, stand on lob, you know, in, in the habitat for the the lobsters. You may not have caught it, but Malcolm is talking here about a rare and endangered creature that is found nowhere else in the entire world except for low-lying rivers across the north of Tasmania. It's called the giant freshwater crayfish, and its population has been dwindling for decades thanks to overfishing and habitat loss. And included in that grant was the, um, the off-stream watering, like with you know, water pipes and, and concrete troughs, and uh, three-wire electric fence to fence off the river and um, it, we had only had a single wire around the edge of the river and every year we'd have to replace it and, and you know, there were issues with cows falling in rivers and things like that where now like it's a more of a permanent boundary fence. What did you think when she first contacted you? Oh well she, she, was, she was initially told, said that she was the lobster lady <laughs> Uh, affectionately, but um, <laughs> sounds like a superhero. A superhero, but yeah, no. Look, once like we started talking and realised, you know, it, it was going to benefit both parties. Right at the very beginning, we looked at areas in this northwest that were good crayfish habitat. We were also only working. Fiona Marshall, leader of the Cradle Coast Authority's Giant Freshwater Crayfish Project. And we were trying to find sections of river that was mainly agricultural. Here we are beside the detention where we've got this magic remnant forest along the the banks of the river and we've got really good patches of remnant vegetation in the Crown lands. So we've got a really good vegetation corridor, um, ideal habitat for crayfish. You know, we've got flowing water, we've got still water, we've got lots of fallen timber, etc. So... Um, yeah, we narrowed it down to six areas based on the landholder interest and, and that was then when I had to speak to landholders that were adjoining and opposite banks. Like, we were trying to get, I guess, a corridor, not just a scattergun approach. They called you the lobster lady. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Um, <laughs> people weren't forced to do anything. As um, Malcolm said, it was really a negotiation process. What was your approach to Malcolm's property? Well, what happened is I brought out an air photo with me and Malcolm and I virtually walked from the top, the upstream end to the downstream end. We, I took photos. We looked at where there might have been damage to outside bends, etc. Um, and then we talked about the kind of works. Malcolm, it's been a while that these fences have been in now. What differences have you noticed? Um, well, I've noticed like the the, the, the rushes are, and you know the, even small blackwoods have actually started to grow up behind the fences. You know, at where before like the cattle's were, cattle were just you know literally eat, been eaten them in the winter time, and yeah, it, you can actually see like to see coming back like and it's thickening up. Over time, I'd love to see some really big lobsters come back into this environment. I mean. There's no doubt we're, we're not trapping or tagging very large ones, so they really have had a lot of pressure put on them over the years, but, yeah, hopefully there's hope for them there. Had you thought much about those before all of this? Um, well, I've, like, I I've grew up beside the river, you know, hunting and fishing, and, you know, you see lobsters running around and everything, and, you know, we used to find lobsters out the middle of the paddock, you know, when we were clearing and things like that, so we knew they were here. 
and you know, they've always and you know, they've always been here in lots of numbers, that and blackfish and everything. So and eels and all you know all the, the, the river health. So I mean, but if you've got a healthy river, you know you, you, everything else is sort of healthy the same. But I think um, I don't mean to swear here, but I think you've become a bit of a greenie. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh well, every farmer is a greenie, and I mean they've got they've got to be. You look after your animals and you look after the ground, and you know they look after each other. We cleared a lot of ground and. I still cut down trees and cut firewood, and yeah, you know, I'm, I'm the first one to you know burn a log and all the rest of it. But you've got to be a, a greenie, you know, to look after the ground the best. You know, otherwise, you know, you're, you're not a farmer if you're not looking after the ground. That's Rocky Cape farmer Malcolm the Greenie ending that report from Meg Powell on the protection of the giant crayfish in Tasmania's northwest. You can see more of that story online at ABC Rural. Well, new technology has been found to be successful that could control invasive mice by essentially breeding themselves out. Researchers at the University of Adelaide have developed a world-first proof of concept for the technology called CRISPR that would make mice infertile. Luke Giris is a PhD student working in genetics at the uni. He says this could help with eradicating mice plagues into the future. So it's a form of genetic control of invasive mice and instead of using sort of bait and trapping mechanisms like we currently do, it uses a genetic approach to spread infertility throughout a population. So it's much more humane than current sort of mechanisms. So it's breeding out these invasive mice? Yeah, essentially it's sort of spreading that trait throughout the population. We've been working on this for about four or five years now, and it's sort of using very new technology, so it's an idea that we haven't been able to do sort of since a few years ago. Why can you do it now? What's this new technology and how is it used? So it uses something known as CRISPR-Cas9 and without going into details, it's a way of sort of cutting and disrupting DNA and that was only discovered about 10 years ago that makes a lot of this technology possible. So there's still a lot of work to do. This is just the first sort of step of proof of concept So the next steps going forward are sort of interacting with the public and stakeholders to get their opinion and feedback on this sort of technology and then sort of slowly progressing to more realistic trials, um, still maintaining it in the laboratory uh, but progressing uh, sort of to more realistic situations. Is it both genders of mice or is it just the females or just the males? So this system, there is some male sterility involved um, but the main drive, I guess, is through female sterility. Is this similar technology to what's being seen with, say, um, sterile fruit fly and things like that? It's similar, yeah. So it works on the same sort of idea, but this is just sort of stronger technology. So we need to, to get this to work, we release fewer mice and it spreads much quicker. So we can do an initial seeding of, you know, a couple hundred mice and then that will be enough in theory to spread and eradicate an entire sort of population uh, targeting an island, for an example. What sort of numbers could uh, could potentially be eradicated? So we've done some modelling in this paper and we've shown that using this system we can release 256 mice into a population of 200,000 on an island and that would eradicate those 200,000 mice in about 25 years. What could this mean into the future when it comes to, you know, farmers dealing with plagues and things like that? Yeah, so it's definitely sort of a new tool that can be used sort of either alongside the current mechanisms or sort of by itself. 
but there's still a lot more work to be done, a lot more research within the laboratory, and then the next step is to focus on islands because they're a lot safer and a lot more containable. But, of course, you know, there's a lot of interest in Australia about using this uh, to stop the mouse plagues that we see, uh, and that's definitely something that we will, I guess, be interested in pursuing further, but that's still a long way away. And can this kind of technology, this new technology, be used for other animals, other pest animals that are also an issue? Yeah, hopefully. So the current system that we have is specific to mice, but we're hoping that components of it can be transferred to other species such as uh, rats and rabbits and foxes. Uh, There's a lot of interest in that. And just finally, how important is this uh, research and, and this technology moving forward? Well, it's critical because, you know, we've had mice in Australia for about 150 years and current control strategies haven't really changed over those 150 years. It's just been trapping and bait. So this is quite a revolutionary technology that gives us another way to try and control and suppress mice, which current approaches aren't quite good enough at the moment. Luke Garris, who is a PhD student working in genetics at the University of Adelaide. So what do those that deal with mice as part of their work think of this new technology? CSIRO research officer and mouse expert Steve Henry says any research that can deal with mice numbers is welcome, but it could still be a long time coming. I think this kind of work is part of a suite of work that's really important to do because we, while we, we need to be focusing on the stuff that we can use to control mice now, we also need to be looking outside of the box in terms of these new technologies to try and grab some any sort of way of helping us to control mice in the future. So in this scenario, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to understand how the technology would spread through populations in a mainland scenario. So again, really important to do the work, but there's a lot of work that needs to go alongside the development of the new tech to understand how it would work in a, in a uh, if you like, on a continental scale or within agricultural systems. Uh, the farming community are fantastic in terms of their willingness to, ad- to adopt new ideas and, and new tech, and farmers are innovating all the time. So yeah, I'm, I'm guessing, I guess, that they would be um, really interested in this sort of thing. My perspective of it is that, that the timeframes associated with getting this work to a situation where it could actually be applied in a real-world scenario are really quite long. So while it's really important to do them, we need to not say, oh, we've got a solution that's just around the corner. CSIR Research Officer and Mouse Expert Steve Henry ending that story from Brooke Neindorf on new efforts to control the mice. Still to come, a resurgence in the fresh flower industry because of COVID. Also a new chair for Berries Australia and we'll check the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The ABC understand the latest illegal release of Medibank data includes data linking hundreds of customers to terminating pregnancies. There are just over 300 files in the latest release on the website connected to a Russian-backed criminal entity. Labor's called on the government to promise a rebate scheme for Tasmanian businesses hit by soaring power prices. Prices rose 12% on June 30 and there are predictions they could increase a further 50% by mid-2024. Premier Jeremy Rockliffe says all options for power bill relief are on the table. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says Kiev is moving cautiously after the announcement from Russia that it's pulling out of Kherson. It's the only regional capital that Moscow captured after invading in February. Russia's 
commander in Ukraine says it's no longer possible to keep supplying the city. And North Melbourne AFLW star Emma Carney will join Alastair Clarkson's coaching group at North Melbourne for the next men's season. The Kangaroos have announced the 33-year-old being hired as a development coach. A teacher by trade, Carney is one of the first AFLW players to switch to men's coaching. For Bulletin at One. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Belinda House joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Belinda. Uh, good afternoon. I take it there's been no rainfall? Oh, look, we've, we didn't have any rainfall in the 24 hours to 9am, nothing of significance. Uh, just starting to see it fall in the gauge over King Island now. So we're up to one millimetre at King Island. Uh, looking at the radar earlier today, we also some, saw some showers pushing over the, the northeast and around the Lulidale, Scottsdale sort of broad area. So it might have picked some up there, but it uh, missed any of our gauges. But look, the, looking at the radar, there is a good band of it approaching our northwest. So it is going to push right across the, the northwest forest this afternoon and extend across remaining parts of the northwest central parts and into the far south as we work our way through the afternoon and reaching the, the southeast late evening. Now with that um, band coming across, we could see some thunderstorms about the northwest this evening. Temperatures relatively uh, warm to hot and humid for this time of year with fresh and gusty northeast and northwesterly winds. So rainfall yet to come today, uh, looking at 10 to 20 millimetres through the northwest of the state, west of about Devonport there. Elsewhere, you're probably looking at one to two millimetres through the northwest and far south remaining areas there, and some places may indeed miss out before the day is out. But look, we're going to have a couple of uh, wet days in store. So showers statewide tomorrow. Uh, we'll see them increase about the east in the afternoon and then clear away from the northwest in the evening. Um, with those storms coming into the northwest uh, tonight, possibility of some thunderstorms across the state as that area of showers pushes across um, during the early morning. And then we may see those thunderstorms redevelop about the north, central and eastern areas in the afternoon. So winds initially fresh northwesterly, but they're going to shift uh, cooler southwest to southeasterly during the afternoon and evening. Then on Saturday, a little bit uh, hit and miss shower activities and patchy shower activities across the state on Saturday, perhaps a little more likely about the north. Winds will be generally southeast to northeasterly with uh, some local afternoon sea breezes. Then on Sunday, it's looking like we'll see those showers uh, statewide, but tending a little rainy about the north, perhaps a little bit more persistent um, in that rainfall on Sunday. Also looking at the chance of some thunderstorms coming into the north of the state Sunday evening, and wind, winds will be fresh east to northeasterly. Then on Monday, we'll have those... Uh, Showers statewide uh, initially expected to clear from the north and the east in the evening. Chance of some thunderstorms about the north and the east during the morning and the afternoon. But look, we've got some colder air coming up later in the day on Monday. So we are looking at the chance of snow down to around about the 900 metre mark about the west and far south Monday evening. And with that, you might see some small hail with those showers. So those northwesterly winds will shift colder west to southwesterly during the day. So our weather's are jumping from hot today, a little milder during Friday, Saturday and Sunday and then um, that cold air coming in on Monday. So four-day rainfall totals through to midnight Monday. The southeast is likely to see the least. Uh, 15 to 20 millimetres is what we're looking at in the southeast, but could see falls in excess of 50 millimetres through the north and west for the period uh, Friday through to the end of the day Monday. What a mixed bag you give us. 
That is that is spring. Yes, it is. I think you didn't mention cyclones or no tidal <laughs> waves or no. We didn't mention any of those. Not today. <laughs> what warnings do we have? Look, we've got um, just some coastal wind warnings. So today we've got strong winds for the eastern, southern and western coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Stanley, and that includes uh, the southeast inshore lakes, uh, Frederick Henry in, inshore bays, South Frederick Henry and Norfolk Bay and Storm Bay, and tomorrow we'll see those strong winds about the uh, east and southeast. And the coastal waters in swell. Yeah, look, so the current uh, swell height at Mariah Island sitting on one and a half metres coming in from the northeast. For Cape Sorrel, it's sitting around two metres coming in from the southwest. So that's going to remain fairly steady today. So a coastal overview generally today, northeast to northerly winds at 20 to 30 knots, although 15 to 20 about the central north where we don't have that warning. Winds will turn around northwesterly 15 to 25 knots about the west this evening with seas around about two to three metres generally. So that swell sitting about where those observations are at the moment across the west and south, the southwesterly swell around two metres. In the north, seeing that northeasterly component one to one and a half metres pushing in through the east, there's that northeasterly component of one to one and a half metres, but a southerly swell also making its way up the east coast of around one metre. Okay, and uh, wave rider? Wave rider, yep, one and a half metres from the northeast at Cape Sorrel and two metres no, at Mariah Island and two metres from the southwest at Cape Sorrel. Thank you, Belinda, for that mixed grill. Thank you very much. See ya. Belinda House from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the country. Our Roger says, on the text line, I have an aviary outside my back door. Rats and mice come in for bird seed and then snakes come in for a free feed. Win-win. <laughs> yeah, good, Roger. Oh, that's what life's about, isn't it? Um, Will, I can't read your your text out. I'm sorry, it's too rude. So, day anyway. Um, coming up shortly... We shall talk about uh, the fresh flower industry and how it's recovered because of COVID. But there's been a new chair of Berries Australia who says the organisation is focused on helping growers overcome the devastating impact of flooding while rising to meet new demands for quality and innovation. Smart Berries Chief Executive Anthony Poyner has been elected to lead the joint venture established by Blueberry, Strawberry, Raspberry and Blackberry grower groups to provide a united voice for the billion-dollar industry. He tells Kelly Buchanan he wants to see the industry continue to evolve as it tackles the challenge of disaster recovery and also the big one of worker shortages. Berries are now our largest fruit category in Australia. So that's it's tremendous um, you know, economic force in the industry. That's been fast evolution, very fast. You know, the, the industry's really come of age over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Incredible improvement in the quality of fruit, which has really created demand from consumers to consume more and more of each of the berry types. And a lot of that's come from better growing, more people growing, better varieties, which just taste better and better processes too. So there's been a lot of progress over the past, you know, decade or more. And I see that progress continuing. One of the challenges we have as an industry is, of course, to represent all of our constituents. We have large businesses and we have family-run businesses and you get innovation of different types from each. That goes to the vibrancy of the industry. So keeping the industry vibrant, keeping the connections, I think, between each of the different grower types, growing different berry types, just creates vibrancy and innovation. So we've got to keep that going. That's on the on the upside and the positive side. And, and of course, we will play a significant role 
in this overall vision for agriculture to be a $100 billion industry. Berries is a very significant category within that, and we have tremendous opportunity to grow. So innovation and sticking with that path that we're already on is very important. On the other side, we have a lot of challenges, of course. Um, floods. Mm. That's, a you know, floods in northern New South Wales, floods in Victoria, very difficult weather events which come from these colliding jet streams in Queensland, intense systems bringing repeated rain in Victoria at the moment. These are hard times for, uh, for growers in those regions. So we just have to um, continue to be aware of those challenges, support those growers w- when these times come. So that's the most current issue, which is very difficult for some. Labor, an expert uh, and capable labor force to manage us through harvest is, is really a top priority. We've had progress on that front, and uh, I'm pleased to say governments of, both, of all persuasions have, have been assistance in this, but we can't forget that this is a very, very significant challenge for us because we have incredibly beautiful fresh fruit and it's all picked by hand. So we need the labour to do that. And that's what creates such a premium product, both domestically and in export markets. Do you see that there's also opportunities to continue that fast-paced evolution, and particularly when it comes to consumer demand and consumer awareness of Australian berries? I do. I do, because you know we're all eating a lot of berries now, but why do consumers become aware of it? Largely, if the fruit's good, and they go and repurchase it because it was good. You brought it back into the kitchen, you put it in the fridge, and uh, how many times do you hear of people saying, you know, oh, that, that punnet was consumed very quickly. And, and that's, that's the driver. We grow good fruit and we grow better and better fruit and, and consumers demand it. Consumers in Australia demand it and increasingly consumers in countries we export to will demand it more and more and more. So what's your message to the members of Berry Australia as you take over the chair? What would you like your message to those growers to be? We are listening. Please keep talking to us about about your challenges. And uh, we at Berries Australia with Rachel, who is uh, our CEO, will continue to play the role that we stand to play, which is to listen and to support in every way we can. And we will uh, both support where we can and champion you know, I'm very pleased that we have Berries Australia as an organisation now, and I'm pleased to see the collaborative and community way that we operate within the industry. It really is a, it's a pleasure to work with people in the industry. Well, we, there are many different opinions. To me, that creates a robustness and, uh, and a capability. So I'm, I'm, I'm honoured to be able to do my turn to uh, try and facilitate that capability through. That's Anthony Pointer from Smart Berries in Mundubra. Now the new chair of Berries Australia speaking there to Carly Buchanan. Uh, just a message from the police. Motorists are advised smoke from a controlled fuel reduction burn may be affecting visibility on the Lyle Highway around 5 k's west of the Derwent Bridge. And road users are asked to slow down and drive to the conditions accordingly. So that's uh, the Lyle Highway around 5 k's west of Derwent Bridge. Uh, visibility affected by smoke. Well, owners of excavators and other earth-moving equipment are in high demand at the moment as floodwaters continue making their way down swollen rivers. Steve Gallais and his staff are putting in long hours around Robinvale in northwest Victoria, trying to help protect houses and permanent plantings like vines and avocado trees. We probably start at you know, around about the 6 in the morning, go through till 5, 6 at night, and then sometimes we have night shifts that run through after that. 
Um, at the minute, we've probably got, including the subbies, we've probably got 30-odd people building levee banks and carting dirt. Given how much demand there is for your earth-moving and excavation services, mm-hmm. how are you deciding what jobs to prioritise? Generally, I go and have a look at the job first and then see how close the water is to when they need help. Um, we've obviously got people that have got 100 millimetres and, you know, yesterday I went to a, a farmer there and he had a levee bank and the water was actually seeping over the top. So we moved the machine in straight away, a 50-tonne excavator in straight away, and I think it was a couple of kilometres of um, levee bank we had to top up. Got him out of trouble, and the other ones that had five, 600, well, we just I made a phone call to them and just said, listen, I've, I'll be a couple of days, I've got to go help this guy first, and then I'll come back to you. And you know, people have been pretty understanding with that, and it's really good. You're starting to get inquiries from further downstream, though. How long do you think you're going to be building flood levees for? Oh, I don't know. We just, we'll help wherever we can, you know. We've, we've had people down there, earth moving companies down there, ring us and ask for our side tippers and excavators and stuff like that. And we're still ringing for people to help us too. So we, we don't know how long this is going to go on and where we go from here. We've got a lot of other work to get to that we've sort of postponed for a little bit to do this sort of stuff. I was on the call to highway yesterday and three excavators on trucks went past me. I wasn't even on the highway that long. Is it a sign that it's a case of all hands on deck in your industry just to try and protect farming land or houses? All my boys are putting in. They've been really good, so, you know, we look after them as well. But um, it's definitely wherever we can get machines from at the minute. We've been ringing people, and I think all the other F movers are in the same game at the minute. We all help each other out, and I'll ring them, and they'll ring me for machinery and dirt and stuff like that. So, yeah, we all sort of pitch in and do our thing. You're the cleanest-looking earth mover I've come across, but you've told me that later today it might not be the same case. Yeah, generally trying to organise 30 people with trucks and excavators and machineries and phone calls and looking at going to look at the jobs to prioritise them. I sort of stay clean in the first part of the morning when I organise everybody and then I generally end up in a machine myself trying to help out and you know take calls and do stuff from inside machines. But... You know, you're looking at, at, during the day, I'd probably spend five hours in a machine or six hours, and the rest of the time of the day, I'm running around looking at jobs, and sometimes the other night, well, 10 o'clock at night, still at people's properties looking at what we can do and when we can get there. There's a lot of community sandbagging happening further upstream. How quickly can you get the same amount of work done as what a sandbagging operation would take? It depends on the volume of what you have to do too, you know what I mean? Like, you've, you're at my place now and you've seen I've built a three-metre wall. That's that's probably 500 metres around, three-odd metres high, and we've done that in four days or something like that with sort of 16 trucks backwards and forwards. But, you know, we've got a... I've sent a loader down to Weeman today. They've got to make 22,000 sandbags there in a hurry too. So we've got a loader there and a heap of sand feeding the machine to build sandbags down there as well. How much have you seen the river rise around your place I've got a mark in the river and we put um, 50 millimetre intervals on it and that's coming up 65 to sort of 85 millimetres every day. That's Steve Galais who operates Mallee Earth Moving and Excavators, keeping very busy with what's happening with the swollen rivers on the mainland. Speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth.
Tune in to Nightlife with Philip Clark and Indira Naidu. You really know your Shakespeare, don't you? I'm keeping it to myself. Thought-provoking discussions to get you through the night. Any thoughts here? Our species had a superpower. It is our ability to cooperate. So what's the advice? Ten in the bed and the middle one said roll over. It's a good family, isn't it? Isn't it? Great. <laughs> Be a bit nervous. I am, extremely. <laughs> Nightlife. What's it going to be? Every night from 10pm on ABC Radio. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. We'll talk roses very shortly. China's insatiable appetite for beef continues to push global exports to new highs and some of that demand comes from an unusual source. It's the introduction of the air fryer. Meat and Livestock Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Dr Verena Rooney, tells Karen Hunt more affluent Chinese consumers are looking for premium beef products. There was a real protein gap for China, largely driven initially by African swine fever, but then also during COVID, people were seeking out beef because of the perceived immunity benefits and the, the positive health benefits as well that they associate with beef. So if there's been an increase in exports from Australia. Does that also indicate a worldwide trend as far as beef imports into China? China has definitely been increasing its imports of beef. They've also been diversifying the number of countries that they get supply from. They've made a concerted effort to basically expand their beef supplier base as part of their food security program. The largest supplies of beef into China now are actually Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay. Would it be fair to say that we are looking at Australian beef as a niche product while the mainstream product is coming from South American countries? I think Australian product is considerably more expensive than the South American product and so it's perceived as being a premium product. Do we expect this trend to continue? Well we do because there's been, as I said, there's been this increase in beef consumption, so strong consumption demand. And there's also a fast increase in the number of affluent households. Consumers in China became exposed to beef. And the other interesting thing that's happened that's kind of helped to support that is the popularity of air fryers. So more people (laughs) have air fryers and are, are comfortable cooking beef at home, whereas in the past, beef was typically something that was consumed whilst they were dining out at food service. So the the availability of air fryers has increased the export of Australian beef to China. That (laughs) sounds really strange. Where has that come from? What is driving it? So particularly in parts of Asia, culturally they've got different kitchen setups to what we have here in Australia. So some countries it's actually quite common for them to have like an outdoor kitchen or cooking area and and, and not have an indoor facility or else they might just have like a really small little stovetop or sometimes, you know, just typically cook with a, a microwave such as in Japan. The popularity of air fryers has, has been quite significant in those markets because it actually means that consumers throughout Asia are actually discovering new ways to cook sort of more Western style food, so like a steak. And so it's really kind of opened up their cooking repertoire to expand to, um, yeah, sort of new different types of dishes. And it's been quite an interesting phenomenon for us to uh, observe. Is this some sort of novelty that's just come in and do you expect the popularity to continue? 
Yeah, well, it's definitely, I suppose, novel. Like in countries like China, obviously food service is still very much impacted by ongoing COVID lockdowns. And so, you know, people have had to cook at home a lot more than they did before the pandemic. And um, it is a sort of new and exciting way for people to cook when they've got a new piece of equipment. <laughs> Dr. Verena Rooney from Meat and Livestock Australia speaking there with Karen Hunt, talking about China's insatiable appetite for beef continuing to push global exports to new highs and some of the demand coming from that unusual source, the introduction of air fryers. There you go. Okay, the cut flower industry is certainly bouncing back after COVID and buoyed by the spike in interest for locally grown flowers. But imports remain a problem for the sector. They're cheaper and they pose huge biosecurity risks. As Larissa Smith discovered on a recent visit to Andrew Lee's greenhouse in the Tamar Valley, alongside French rose breeder Matthias Mayund. So this is our second main production greenhouse. And this greenhouse has 38,000 plants in production and produces in excess of 400,000 stems of roses per year. What makes this greenhouse different to the one that we were just in? It's newer. (laughs) Uh, This house was actually specifically constructed. We laser levelled the site. We use natural ventilation, so the site actually has a 10% slope, which therefore we don't need fans to move air through the greenhouse, which is a massive energy saving. We also get a lift in production by because we face north and then we've lifted up at 10%, it's equivalent in the winter months of sort of being north of Melbourne in terms of latitude for increased production. We currently use state-of-the-art Israeli-made plastic to provide the ideal light environment for our crop. One of the issues that we have in Tasmania is, of course, the oscillation in day length from winter to summer. So in winter, we need maximum light transmission, In summer, we actually have to reduce the amount of light transmission to reduce stress on the plants. So this Israeli plastic is actually diffused. uh, And if you look at it, you can't actually see through it. The light is actually broken up and reflected at many angles as it comes through the film, which provides this very even light inside the greenhouse. That actually enables us to have more light in winter and actually less intense light in summer. So, and that was a major breakthrough in plastic film uh, technology, which was made quite a long time ago. He's not only using some technology things to, to, to make it better, he's using wiseness, uh, knowing how, of how you can get cooled um, the greenhouse, how you can save the plant or get better from the plant with, uh, with things that are neither chemical nor, uh, nor energy. And that's really interesting then for the, for the next client that is going to go see because he's also our agent here and he's supposed to uh, plant those rows in other greenhouse. And so he can bring some know-how to, to people that would like to have that kind of business in Australia. And that's really interesting. How important is sustainability and the way that your breeders grow their roses? Uh, is that something that your clients ask about? Well, it's new for them because the, the, the market before was just import, import, import. And now there's a, there's a little bit of sense of, oh, let's, let's try to put back jobs. Let's try to have the flowers as fast as possible to the florist. So the freshness is there and minimum impact around. Actually, 
if we could have a positive impact, that would be even better. So that, that's the interest of, of that kind of thing. It's interesting, up until the pandemic, approximately 90% of Australia's flowers across all types of flowers were imported from overseas. Courtesy of the pandemic and reduced airline flights, the number of imported flowers was rapidly reduced. And so a lot of Australian grown flowers have come back onto the market, which is definitely sustainable in terms of less CO2 miles or however it's described, which is really, really good. How did COVID affect the shipment of some of these varieties um, to all of your breeders around the world? The, the cut flower business got hurt a little bit, but still have a lot of... Um, they want to do some things about it. So they, they are looking for new varieties right now. They cannot invest immediately, but the breeders, those who create the varieties, need to continue breeding because it's going to pick up in, in a few in a few years. They're going to have needs of new variety. For example, there's a lot of talk about relocated the production uh, in, in countries, like maybe 5 to 10% will be good. The only problem that we have, and I'm talking Europe, but it's the same in Australia, huh, is to find the hands to handle that production because roses doesn't cut themselves, doesn't pack themselves, doesn't ship themselves. So basically, we are able today to propose varieties that will be maybe 50 to 100 kilometers away from the, from the florist, which will be great in terms of uh, CO2, and, uh, but, but we need the people that want to wake up in the morning early, cut the flowers, pack them and ship them best thing that sort of came out of the pandemic for um, Australian flower growers was the fact that reduced imports gave an opportunity to try and compete. It will be interesting to see in the next couple of years, does it revert back to predominantly being imported product? It takes approximately three to six months to get a new variety through quarantine. Exactly the same plant material coming into Australia as a cut flower, it's two days and then it's on supermarket shelves which has always been an issue which growers have tried to highlight for many, many years, the potential quarantine risk of bringing flowers into the country and in such a short period of time. They don't last. No, and I also had to get in something the other day, a customer requested specifically, which was grown in Southeast Asia, so it had come in overseas, and all you could smell was the methyl bromide on it, which is what they fumigate everything with. And the smell was so strong, it was terrible, and I had to tell all the staff not to touch it, not to smell it, because it's a known carcinogen. You've got to have the biosecurity. That's the issue. But you've also got to be aware that all these people are having things, such as weddings and things, at vineyards, where things are brought in from overseas, because that's the type of flowers they want, because they saw it on Instagram. may not be in season in Australia, but it's grown elsewhere, so they can import it. But then they have the wedding at the vineyard, and then you, if it's not been through those proper systems such as methyl bromiding then those potential pests and things could be released into the vineyard. In late 2019 the non-compliance rate of flowers coming into the country in terms of being detected with pests in the consignments was in excess of 75% which was horrendous when you think about in that year alone there was in excess of 70 million stems of roses imported. Andrew Lee from Chamber Valley Roses and also we heard from Matthias Mayund from France, a French rose breeder, and Floris Lee talking there to Larissa Smith. Look out for the online story with lovely pictures of the roses going up at ABC Rural Online on Saturday. That is our program for today. We will catch you after midday tomorrow. <laughs>